0: Psalm 23 reads in part, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. What the psalmist is saying is that he is equating death to a shadow. The truth of the matter is if you and I were standing on a busy street corner and a semi-truck came barreling along the the road and the shadow of that truck passed over us, that would create no harm. It would create no death because it's only the shadow. If we got hit by the truck itself, that's another story. The reality is another story. But the shadow of it would create no harmship. That is what death is like for us. It's just the shadow. We move from life to life. A shadow is also spoken about in terms of Jesus, that Jesus is the reality that replaced the shadows um, that spoke about the things that would happen when the Messiah came. The sacrificial system would be replaced with the the final one and true sacrifice that was Jesus on the cross. The Saturday Sabbath would be replaced with the Sunday resurrection. The dietary laws were changed. The temple would no longer be um, the center of the religious world. It would now pivot over into the church, the emerging church. And it is the emerging church that the book of Acts captures. It is these shadows or copies that look forward. No longer are the shadows of the past needed because the reality is now here. So about 49 years after Jesus had died and risen from the dead, the first epistle was written, which is the epistle of Galatians. Apostle Paul had gone on three mission trips. Each mission trip lasted a little bit longer in duration and covered a broader geographical area what Paul would do is he would go into an area that he didn't know the people, they did not know him, and his credentials that he was speaking the truth about Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, came from miracles. If two people came in it proclaimed a story, and one could do miracles and the other one could not, the accreditation would go to the person that could do the miracles because only miracles could come from God. And if, if, the person could present miracles, then you knew that what this person was saying was also true. So Apostle Paul would come in and do miracles for the new people. That would gather together crowds. It's not like they had TV and radio back then. So when something unusual like that was happening, it draw tremendous crowds. And they would say, you know, by what power were you able to do that? And Paul would explain, well, I could do it by the power of Christ. Let me tell you about him. So so miracles and teaching always went hand in hand. There were never miracles just for the sake of doing miracles. It was always connected to teaching. Miracles were the, the calling card of, of credibility. So in the early church, miracles were very widespread and commonplace to the point that The Bible records that even if the apostles walked down a street, if the shadow of them had passed over somebody that was um, ill or lame laying in the road, that they would be healed. Or if there was some sort of a a handkerchief or cloth that uh, the apostles touched, that if somebody that needed to be healed touched this cloth, it would heal them. So miracles were very common in wide place. However, as the books of the New Testament began to be written acts and galatians and corinthians and and first uh, peter and second peter and, and revelation and so forth as the books of the new testament began to be written the the need for miracles decreased so you can read it very clearly in the book of acts at first in the earlier chapters when they're going into new areas they're commonplace but then um, as the as the gospels and the in the epistles are starting to be written, the people no longer had to live by sight, but could live by faith. So you and I today we do not see the commonplace miracles, the widespread miracles that happened at that time, for example, uh, we could go to a hospital in in a burn unit is not empty. a hospital is not empty um so so God works miracles in a different way today than he did back then because you and I can open up the scriptures and we can read about God's word. We do not need that accreditation. We already have that. So God works differently. He works through medicines. He works through physicians, giving skills and talents and knowledge. Um, he works through um, interpretations, uh, interpreters, rather than speaking in tongues the native language uh, that That Paul and Peter and the other apostles would go into a town, and if they didn't speak that language, they would be able to understand them because they, they spoke in those those tongues, they could hear them in their native accents. So you and I we can use interpreters or we can use um, you know some sort of a technology that will translate um, things for us so So we still have the exact same benefits. it's just presented differently. Um, Today is an ordinary time. When God is working something special, building a church, um, walking on the face of the earth, there's extraordinary that happens. During the Bible, there's a lot of periods that are very ordinary where um, there are not miracles happening. And then there's other periods, like the time of Moses, where there's a tremendous amount of miracles. So right now, the time that you and I are living in, Miracles are really not required because we do have the written scriptures. So what had happened during the time of the book of Acts is when Paul would go into an area, once again, they didn't know him. So he would do the miracles, do the teaching, and then he would leave and go to the next town. And that next town didn't know him either. So he would do the miracles and the teaching. But then what he would do is he would write a letter back to the people. He would write the letter of Galatians or Corinthians or Thessalonians, so he would write them back letters, reminding them of the things that he said and taught, and to check in with them. And then what he would do on his second mission trip and the third mission trip is he would circle back to those people to check in to see how they were developing, how their faith was was hopefully becoming stronger. And when Paul would go back and do um, go back to these same areas he had been at on a prior mission trip. There's no recording of him doing any miracles because he already had those credentials. So miracles are only happen when it's introduced to a new group of people. When he circles back to them, there's no new miracles because there's none that are needed. When you get into the later chapters of the book of Acts, no longer do you see the miracles happening. For example, Paul has an ailment that he prays to Jesus and say, Here, take this away from me. And Jesus says, "My my grace is sufficient for you." So Paul is left to to handle that issue on himself rather than healing himself. Uh, when they're in the jails, no longer are the the prison cells opening up and the chains falling off like they did earlier um, in, in earlier chapters. So toward the end, no, the prison doors remain shut. When people that are with Paul, when they have stomach ailments and when they're ill, Paul leaves them behind because they're no longer useful for him. Um he wants them to take care of their own health. He give, he tells them to drink like a grape juice or something to settle their stomach. No longer does he just heal them like he would in earlier times where miracles were abundant and um and in everywhere. So so once we get to the end of the of the book of Acts, now the church is established. It it's a historical document. The book of Acts really does not have theology in it. It's really in a historical account. Here's what happened, and then here's what happened, and then we went here. And then you get into the epistles, uh, the letters that went back to the church. Those letters are really what explain what happened. You know, when Jesus came, why did he come? What did he say? What's the significance of that? So the epistles will lay out the theology. So Romans as far as placement within the Bible is the first epistle and what Paul writes in Romans is that he establishes that we are all sinners there's nobody exempt and that God is righteous that that it, that we get receive whatever righteousness we have we receive from God it's it's not from us it's from God and because God is righteous he is also able to judge that he does not make uh, mistake or error that he judges perfectly, and and, and um, he points out that we are slaves to sin or we are slaves to righteousness. We're we're, we're one or or the other. That there's a physical battle within us. That uh, physically, you know, I, I I do the things that I don't want to do, and the things I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. So Paul lays that out, and then he introduces a new term, justified, that that we're justified by, by faith, not by works. That when God looks at us as righteous, he judges us, he, we're just in his eyes. That he looks at us and he says, you're just. I, I, I accept what you've done based on my righteousness, not yours. And he gives an example of Abraham. And, and he says that Abraham um, received the promise of faith based on faith, not works. It wasn't based on what Abraham did. But what happened is that God spoke to Abraham, gave him a promise, and Abraham, by faith, packed up and moved and followed the instructions that God said. So faith is believing what God said simply because it's God that said it. So that is kind of a quick definition of faith. If God did not say something, how can we have faith or trust in it? Um, If God said, there'll never be hardship in the world, life will always be joyful. If God said that, and that's clearly not what's happening in the world, you know, that would be a problem. But God never said that. So why would we be surprised that there's hardship and trouble in the world? God never said that. But the things that God did say, that he will never forsake us. Those are the things that we can trust on because God said it. We, by faith, can accept it just like Abraham did by following the promise that God had spoken to him, and he did that by faith. And then then it's also pointed out that sin came into the world through one person, Adam, but it also exits the world through one person, Jesus. And, And then it also makes the point that everyone is without excuse. Everyone has the ability to believe and understand uh, because uh, of many ways. One, because it's it's knowing in nature. We can look at nature around us and we can see the order. We can see the power. We can look at male and female relationships in animals and we can see what's natural. We can look at creation and say, well, how did this get here? We're, we're on earth, did this, did nothing plus nothing equal everything? You know that doesn't make sense. It had to be, it had to be um, a God that spoke it, that that made it being. It couldn't have been from one abstract little piece of dust, you know, um, eons ago, that somehow split and multiplied into everything else, because that would beg the question: Well, where where did the dust come from? Who created that? So so creation is a, is a testimony to uh, the fact that things exist. And then that, that begs the question, well, what do, we, what do we praise and worship? Do we praise and worship the creator or the creation? And Romans says nature itself groans, that, that sin is in nature. We have hurricanes and volcanoes and, and we have droughts. And, and that is all, sin is passed down into nature also. And we re- we're reminded of that when Jesus is on the cross. He's wearing a thorn um, of crowns on his head that it's a reminder to us that his death certainly paid our sin debt, but it's also a reminder that sin is in nature. And during Jesus' second coming, when everything is is purified, that will include nature as well. And then we also have a conscious within us, a conscious of heart and mind, um, almost like a written code, if you will. Um, We know we're born knowing good from evil. Um, we do not have to be taught bad. We do not have to um, teach a child how to do bad. That comes naturally. We have to, um, we have to teach people how to be good. So our um, innate being is sinful. So we have to, through God's righteousness, take his righteousness so that we can overcome that. But we are written with a code, almost like a computer program, like a software. And what we have to do is we have to rewrite that code. Uh, we have to take that stony heart and replace it with a, a heart of, of flesh. And then it's a, a discussion about sin and law. That that the law, um, you know, the the moral law, the, the the legal law, that lets us know what sin is. It, it's like guardrails on a on a uh, a highway that they they let you know the parameters when you hit a guardrail you know you're you're off track and and the same is true with that conscious of heart and mind it, it's like a written written um, code that lets us know when we're varying off from where we should but like any law there's no redemption if I speed I get a speeding ticket so so I have that I have that judgment so how do I take that judgment away so if I break the law, the law just points out when you're in error. There's no forgiveness or mercy in the law. The law is only judgment against you. So where does the mercy and forgiveness come from? How does that rectify the law? And that comes to us through Jesus. So so it's through Jesus that we're, we're freed from the law. Kind of like um, when you think about marriage, a marriage is a covenant that lasts forever while you are alive. But once you are dead, you are free from that, 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 uh, that vow. Um, it's not sinful to remarry after a spouse passes away because that law no longer is binding once you have, have died. So if we die to sin, we are not bound by the law, the code of sin. And fortunately, we have the Holy Spirit that will help us through this process to understand God's righteousness and to help us overwrite the code and, and to do do these things. So it is, it's through the, the Holy Spirit that we have hope. And hope is not a promise that is unattainable. Hope is something that we already have. Um, a bad example is if I ordered a pizza and I ordered it 30 minutes ago, I'm not hoping that pizza's gonna show up. I, I know it's gonna show up. It's gonna show up maybe, I don't know exactly when it's gonna show up. Maybe it's gonna be five minutes from now or 10 minutes from now or 30 seconds from now. But I really have no doubt that it's gonna show up. I, I don't have to have hope in something that that um, it hasn't been promised. So the promise that they are going to deliver the pizza or deliver salvation, that is the hope we have. So we ha- have hope in eternal salvation. That's already been promised to us. God cannot lie. God is righteous. So we don't have to worry about that. It's just a matter of when that is fulfilled, um, when he's going to come and execute his second coming and so forth. And then we have the fact that it's God's election. Um, It's God's sovereign choice. God is God. We're not. So he can choose who he wants to save and who he doesn't. The point is that we are all born sinners. Every one of us. There's no exception. So we are all born and condemned to death through sin. However, God is going to save those he wants to save. It's like being in a burning building. Everyone in that burning building is going to be condemned to death. But God, in his righteousness, in his justified judgment, he's going to reach into that burning building and he's going to grab those he wants to save from death and save them. So why he would choose me and not choose someone else or why he would choose someone else and not choose me, that is God's sovereign choice. So Apostle Paul gives us examples. He gives us the example that the promise of salvation comes through Abraham, that, that God had spoke to Abraham and said, your seeds will be as many as the sand on the, on the, on the seashore, as many as the stars as you can see, that it's gonna be that abundant. So the promise was made to Abraham that his children would be um, the chosen. However, Abraham had children through two different women, through his wife, Sarah, who he had Isaac, who was the promise that the seed would come from from Sarah and Abraham. But Abraham, in his impatience on waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled, had slept with the maidservant of Sarah, whose name is Hagar, and that produced a child named Ishmael. So here you have two children from two different women. God chose one over the other. It's his elect choice to do that. When there were twins that were born, uh, Jacob and Esau, God chose Jacob and rejected Esau. So God, in his sovereignty, can choose whoever he wants to bring into faith. We are all part of the eternal love gift from God the Father to God the Son, And whoever is part of that gift is God's sovereign choice. It's not for us to to determine. So it comes to this, that once God determines that this is the person that I am going to save, we're all, like I said, we're all doomed for destruction. However, God is not condemning us to death. He is saving some from that death. And those that are saved, here's what Paul writes. He says, For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that covers everything. Um, Whether it's uh, a holy angel or something demonic cannot disrupt the plan. If it's something alive or something dead, cannot disrupt the plan. If it's anything above or below, cannot disrupt the plan. If it's anything from the past or the future, cannot disrupt it. And then Paul says, in case I forgot anything else, nothing else in creation can separate us from the love of God. So that it appears that the Jewish people have been overlooked, that the the time of the Gentiles that you and I are in right now, that this is happening. How about the Jewish people, the, the, the people that the promise had originally come to? So as the, the Gentiles are being grafted in, Paul it uh, raises the question, well, what about the, 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 the Jews? And Paul points out in, in chapter 10, verse 2, that the issue that they had at that time is that they elevated their own righteousness and they lowered God's righteousness. So Paul points out that that salvation is not based on bloodline. It's based on faith, where we are children of Abraham and Sarah is our connection that they had with God based on faith. It's not based on we won life's lottery because we were born in the right family. No, it's because we share the same faith that Abraham had. And the Jewish people today are able to share in that same faith. There's still a remnant that God is is um, bringing into faith even today individually. However, When the time of the Gentiles closes, then the time of the Jewish people will come back in. So Paul is is quick to know that. And Paul uses himself as an example. Paul says, I'm a Jewish person. I'm a Christian. So Paul is saying, if it can happen to me, it can certainly happen to others. Peter, Peter was a Jewish person. He is a Christian. So it can happen then and it can happen today. It's not by bloodline it's because we have the shared grace. So Apostle Paul goes on to explain grace. And grace is when we get something that we are not expecting that we, um, it's really just, a, a, it's a free love gift. Uh, for example, if somebody knocked on your door today and handed you a blueberry pie, um, it wasn't something you were expecting, you didn't earn it, um, it was really just a gift. Somebody was expressing to you that they wanted you to have that just for their own reasons, just because they love you. Well, that grace is a free love gift. If you try to pay for that, if you say, well, let me give you $5. Well, it's no longer grace. It's no longer a free gift. And that's what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's not because we expected it. It's not because we earned it. It was a love gift. So we have the choice to either accept it on face value, or if we try to earn it by doing certain rituals, or being a better person, or helping little old ladies cross the street, um, and we try to earn our way in, well, then it's not a free love gift. Now, if we have to earn it, well, we have to earn it in full. So where grace differs than mercy is mercy when we are supposed to get something, but it is withheld for us. For example, if you were in a court of law and you were found guilty and you were... to be sentenced to go into prison, but the judge or the governor pardoned you or showed you mercy. You you deserve to go to prison, but yet you are not given what you are deserving. That would be mercy. Where God gives us mercy is just like a governor could pardon somebody on death row. Well, Jesus does the same thing. He pardons us from our sins and no longer holds those against us based on what he did on the cross. That payment was still paid, but it was paid by him. It would be like the governor saying, you don't have to go. I'm going to go into you. It's that perfect blend of grace and mercy. And faith is really the bucket that picks up the grace. So like that spot cleaning, in the upper room with Peter. When we sin or we backslide we turn to God and we confess our error. We ask for His forgiveness. We understand that He's right to judge us the way that He would and we ask for His grace and mercy. So faith is like a bucket that scoops up God's grace and washes over us. And to show you how amazing God is with His grace and mercy That in Romans 8, 18, not only are we forgiven, but we are adopted as God's sons and daughters. We're heirs to everything that he owns. There was something interesting that happened on the cross. The cross really was a two-prong event. The death on the cross, Jesus dying on the cross, is what paid our sin penalty. Somebody had to die. Somebody had to be judged And Jesus stepped in our place and said, I will go. So that was the first part. Had Jesus not died, our penalty would still be in effect. We would still have to pay that. If you think of it in terms of a will, a will goes in effect when the person dies, not when it's written. So when the person dies, that's when it goes into effect. When Jesus spoke the New Covenant, up in the upper room during the Last Supper, that did not go into effect until he died on the cross. So had he not died on the cross, our sin penalty would not have been paid. But when he did die on the cross, like a will, that in turn had come into play. So that was the first part of it. Well, the second part of it is not only did he just die, which is awesome and amazing in itself, but he arose from the dead so what's the significance of that part well our sin debt was paid when he died it wasn't contingent on him arising from the dead but the significance of him rising from the dead is really two-pronged one it showed that he defeated satan satan's only weapon is death so if jesus overrules death then satan has no power so what this means is there's an exchange that is made. That Jesus is exchanging his righteousness for our sinfulness. So there's an exchange. Well, what we get as part of that exchange, when we get his righteousness, what happens is God looks down at us and he does not see us. He sees his Holy Spirit within us. He sees his son's righteousness wrapped around us he sees his son's cleanliness in us he doesn't see our sinfulness anymore no longer is he at war with us no longer are we an adversary to him he looks down from heaven and he sees his son's righteousness and as part of his son's righteousness we take on the role of um, of a righteous person and we become adopted as sons and daughters he becomes our father and we are his sons and daughters we are heirs to everything that he owns so the bible makes it clear well why would you covet things why would you steal things when you're going to own them anyway when you're in heaven you inherit all of that as fellow sons and daughters of god because the exchange is not just an exchange where he takes on our sin but we take on his righteousness we become sons and daughters that's what Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse eighteen. So why would we covet and steal and, and do these sort of things when it's ours anyway? Why have greed? You know why shouldn't we be charitable and give what we have? because it, it's ours anyway. We have an endless supply. In the other epistles, like Romans, they add additional layers and additional examples and different uh, explanations of different theologies, just like just like we discussed here in Romans. For example, in 2 Corinthians, there's discussions about how the Holy Spirit is a deposit um, to us, that we don't have the fullness of God's promise here. We just get an engagement ring. When when a couple get engaged, they exchange a, a, a ring. Um, that's the promise. The fullness happens at the wedding ceremony. The same thing with, with you and I. Um, we have the Holy Spirit within us. That is a, that is a, a sign. That is a... A down payment that is like an engagement ring of the future fulfillment where we will have the fullness so the other Gospels will discuss other things they will also talk about the application okay now that we have this now that we have this this head knowledge now that we have this heart knowledge how do we how do we apply it how does it work in our lives um, how do we um, uh, how do we interact with our government how do we interact with one another how do we interact with fellow church believers? Well, the Bible is really written for believers. The Bible is really not written for non-believers. Um, it, it talks about brothers and sisters and beloved. So it's it's understood that when you're reading it that you are a believer. Um, I use an example sometimes when I'm doing Bible studies where um, I will look at it like a classroom. If you have A students and C students and F students, who do you teach to you know who do you if you if you're paying attention to the f students the a students are not being challenged if you're sp- spending time with the a students, the F students and the C students are going to fall behind well, the Bible really speaks to fellow believers um what should we do? how should we live? We don't judge the non-church. Why should they live on the standards that you and I um, should be living on? They don't have Christ in them. they don't hear God's voice. They don't have the Holy Spirit as a deposit. So why should they have the same expectations of how they should live that we have? You as fellow believers, you and I as fellow believers in fellow church we should we should have fellowship. We should have something that you know that unites us uh, with the church. Um, when we judge each other, if, if, we're, if we're fellow church members, should we go to a judge and, um, and have him um, settle some lawsuit for us? No, as fellow believers, you and I should settle that among ourselves. Why should we go to a presumably pagan um, um, judge and let a pagan judge judge the church, judge you and I, the believers? You know, that's an abomination to God. You know, we should turn to each other with forgiveness. So the, the epistles really will review other things. How do we interact with one another? What should it look like? Um, you know, what is, what's the application for this new emerging church? And the letters will we'll lay that out. It will give examples. Um, you know, when praying, um, you know, there's only one God in the universe. So if we are praying to that one God in the universe that one God, the holy living God, will hear us. But if we're not praying, if we're praying to the dead, if we're praying to other people, well, is God going to hear that? Does God want to hear that? You know, there's only one God. While I am on earth, if somebody were to pray to me, and I'm not saying pray for me, but pray to me, I do not have the capability to hear that. How would I even know? Um, how would I know unless that person told me? I, I can't even perceive that. So when I die and I go to heaven, why would I suddenly be able to hear prayers and do things? Uh, why would people pray to me for, for healing and forgiveness? I do not have the power to do that. I'm not God on earth. I'm certainly not God in heaven. So we pray to the living God in heaven. We don't pray to the dead. The dead are dead. They can't hear us. Their spirits um, you know, they, what do they do? Do they turn to Jesus and say, Hey, I'll take this one. Um, you know, it doesn't work that way. Um, so if we're not praying to God, we're praying to the devil. Um, that's what the Bible says. That's not my opinion. That's what the Bible says. Um, you can read about that in, in chapter 10, uh, verse uh, 29. God says, I will not share my glory with another. There, there's only one God. So we want to focus our praise and worship on God. If God chooses to use somebody up in heaven like he did with Samuel to go and answer a prayer, that's God's prerogative, but we do not make those decisions for him. Um, it's very specific when you read 1 Samuel chapter 28. The Bible has hundreds of places where it talks about mediums and spirits and astrologers and soothsayers and, and magis, magicians and ma- mystics, that how all of these are are um, reprehensible to God. Um, God doesn't want us to go and um, find answers from anybody else, some palm readers or any of that sort of um, a, um, fortune tellers. You know, to to God, that is an abomination because we are trying to replace others in the position of God. We never would want to do that. When we do that, it the Bible says it's like praying to Satan. You're either praying to the true God. Or if you're not praying to the true God, then who are you praying to? And the Bible says, you're really praying to the to the demons, to Satan. So we do not want to do that. Another verification that we would not want to pray to the dead is, doesn't that assume that we know where the dead are? That we have judged them to be up in heaven as opposed to in, in hell, for example. So... Aren't we, in essence, making ourselves God where we are judging? That well, certainly, this person's in, in, in heaven. I'm going to pray to this person. This person's going to answer my prayer. Um, you know, once again, to God, that's an abomination. We are taking the place of God, and God will not have that. He will not share his glory with another. And Paul also speaks of other things, like how he has sacrificially gone through hardships. And, and Paul's point is that those are proofs of the truth. That why would Paul go through beatings and stonings and, and uh, being shipwrecked and being hungry, hungry and being cold and, and being whipped and being imprisoned and all of these hardships that Paul lays out. Why, why would someone do that if it were not for the truth? Would someone who is adamant about a, a false doctrine... Um, about evolution versus creation. Would they be willing to go to prison? Would they be willing to be stoned? Would they be uh, willing to uh, be put under financial ruin? Would they be willing to be whipped? Uh, Probably not, uh, because why would someone with flimsy um, thinking, false thinking, why would they be willing to go through that type of a, a hardship, that type of a sacrifice? unless they truly believed in, uh, in the truth. So these epistles from its various authors are here to admonish us when we're wrong, to correct us, to build us up. And since it's difficult to be a perfect imitator of the perfect person, which is Jesus Christ, we try to be imitators of those that imitate Christ. For example, we would want to be imitators of apostle Paul or apostle Peter. Um, and if we cannot do that, then we want to look at those around us who are, um, have the spirit in us, who live by faith. Um, what, what role models are they for us that we can look at and we can model ourselves? So if we can't be imitators of Christ, let's be imitators of the, um, of the apostles. If we can't be imitators of the apostles, let's be imitators of fellow church faithful. And that will help us live lives that are headed in the right direction, that are built on the foundations of the truth and saving grace.